Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse. Everybody say, no excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For, here's the reason, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. I want to preach to you on these 11 verses under the title, No Excuses. No excuses. Let's go to God in prayer and ask Him for His help as we get into this text. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this text. We ask, God, that as I preach it, that You would help me as, as Your preacher communicate Your Word, not mine. I pray that You would open our hearts to be receptive to Your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you, I assume, have probably seen a sermon that had gone viral over the last two decades from 2002 when a man named Paul Washer was invited to preach to 5,000 young people in Montgomery, Alabama. He was at this conference and leading up to his sermon, his opportunity to address these 5,000 young people. The conference had been filled with jokes and a lot of laughing. The day before, a man had preached and had filled a sermon with a bunch of jokes and had everybody laughing the entire time, and then he did an altar call, and hundreds of youth came down to the front to pray a prayer, and many of them were still laughing at the altar. So all of this kind of set the stage for a heart-to-heart kind of sermon as the preacher had grown very concerned for the eternal state of the youth at this conference. And so he went on preaching, and one of the things he said was, he said, within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell. And then he exhorted them to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And at that point, 
the 5,000 listening erupted in clapping and shouting, amen. And Washer points his finger at the 5,000, and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. That's the vibe I get when Paul moves from chapter 1 in Romans to chapter 2 in Romans. You see, chapter 1 in Romans is the Apostle Paul's indictment, and I should say God's indictment through the Apostle Paul on all of the pagans out there. You know, the, the Greeks, the Roman citizens, those going to the brothels, those doing very bad things. And I think Paul feels the nodding of heads from the moral people. I think he feels the amens from the do-gooders. I think he feels the clapping of the religious folks. And he then in chapter 2 turns and he says, oh, I'm, I'm talking about you. Meaning, you do-gooder, you religious folk, you morally upright individual, you need grace just as much as the pagan out there. So going back to Romans chapter 1, verse 28 and 31, when Paul says, I, uh, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He's saying, I'm not just referring to the pagans out there, but the religious in here. I'm not just referring to outward rebels, but inward rebels. I'm not just referring to those who do these things externally, but I'm referring to those who do these things secretly and in the heart. I'm not just referring to those people who look really bad, Paul's saying, I'm referring to those people who look really good. It's not just them out there that need Jesus. It's us in here that need Jesus. Meaning, you too, without Christ, are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. As Paul has stated the pagans are filled with. And so therefore, we have what? No excuse. Say it again for me. You've got no excuse. No excuse. The you in verse 1, when he says you have no excuse, is a singular you. Well, why does that matter? Paul, when he's addressing his readers, uses a plural you. A you all or y'all. So the fact that he uses a singular, singular you means that he's not actually necessarily indicting all of his readers in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Meaning, many of his readers are genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ, not in their self-righteousness. So the you that Paul is addressing here is somewhat of a diatribe against this imaginary but very real self-righteous individual. 
he might be reading the letter. She might be sitting in the room today. But the point is, is that there are people who are do-gooders, morally uh, self-righteous, and Paul is looking directly at them, turning from the pagan to what we might call the religious, the special, the insider. These are the circumcised. Those who have received the the law of Moses. Those who are ethnic Jews, those who are the blood of Father Abraham. Those who have grown up in church. Those who have said the sinner's prayer at one point. Those who use churchy phrases. You know how to sound religious. He's referring here to the respectable to the one who's never used drugs, to the one who hasn't even had a drop of alcohol, much less ever been drunk. He's referring to the ones who are of a more respectable uh, ethnicity, you know, in their case, Jewish. In our case, all of our own ethnic divisions. He's referring to the one who is of a more respectable family, uh, comes from a strong family background a lot of accomplishments in our family, a lot of Christian history in our family. He's referring to the one who may have degrees and have earned things and have done well in this world, the one who's making a contribution to society, the one who is maybe praised by others. Or, you know, kind of ironically, he might also be referring to the person who has been hurt, the person who has been suffering, and they believe that because of their past, they get a pass. Because I have suffered in some way, God will overlook my shortcomings. You could kind of summarize all of this by simply the fact that he's addressing the person who thinks they're special for one reason or or another. So the way I want to do this, the way I want to teach through these 11 verses is I want to turn these 11 verses into five mistakes that religious people make. I'm going to use the word religious in kind of a very broad sense, recognizing that some people in this room might find themselves special to God in a non-religious kind of way, all right? So when you hear me say religious, think very broadly, special. Five mistakes that religious people make, five mistakes that do-gooders make, five mistakes that morally upright people make, five mistakes, five mistakes that you and I very well could be in danger of making. So let's take heed this morning. Number one, mistake number one is believing that exposing the sin of others hides your own sin. To believe that if I can expose the sin of others and be angry about it, that it somehow covers the fact that I participate in the same things. So Paul starts in verse 1 with this very broad statement that becomes the backbone for his entire argument. He says, therefore, you have, say it again, no excuse, oh man, every one of you who does what? 
who judges, who makes himself the judge. He's looking at the person here who is looking down on the Romans 1 kind of people, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree, Paul. There's these really bad people in the world. And Paul's looking at them and saying, I'm talking about you, you who judges. You have no excuse. And then he goes on for, uh, into his reasoning. He says, for, here's the reason, in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I think of a religious leader who some years ago had been known to be just railing against homosexuality all the while he was getting a uh, homosexual prostitute. Indicting himself, condemning himself. Going on to verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly, everybody say rightly, God's judgment is never wrong. His judgment is always right. His judgment rightly falls on who? Those who practice such things. This is the second time he's used the word practice already in these two verses. Meaning, the the issue isn't, do you have the law, but do you do the law? Uh, You could have a whole bookshelves of laws, but not do any of them. Paul's saying, I don't care if you possess the law of God, do you do the law of God? You might boast in your library. You've got so many Christian books that explain the doctrines of the faith and show us what it means to live as an ethical person and a morally upright person and a just person in society, yet we are living an unethical life, an immoral life, a life of injustice. It doesn't matter how many books you have. The issue is, do we practice these things is what he's saying. And so God's right justice, His judgment, comes down on the one who does not practice God's law. As opposed to practicing God's law, they, they compare themselves to themselves. They are their own standard. Uh, they see themselves as, for whatever reason, superior. And Paul is basically saying, here is what you need to do. You need to, do. You need to stop pointing your finger at everybody else. And recognize, I'm talking about you. The second mistake that religious people make is believing that though you do the same thing as the wicked, that you will somehow escape God's judgment. Though you practice the same things, as these people out there practice, that you will somehow escape the judgment that you believe is coming to them. So he goes on in verse verse 3 to explain uh, uh, what, what he believes to be sort of this like only possible explanation for how you can go on uh, believing that you're going to get away with this. Uh, believing that you are too special for God's judgment. My daughter, uh, a couple years ago, in ninth grade, she's in 11th grade now, so two years ago, when she was in ninth grade uh, at Poly, she took gym class with Justin Lewis 
who was the poly basketball standout. And uh, he's, Justin Lewis is currently at Marquette. He's probably going to be in the pros in the next couple years. This dude is an amazing athlete. And my daughter was in gym class with him. I thought that was pretty cool. But that's not the point of telling the story right now. I remember when she was in gym class with Justin, she would talk about how uh, he wouldn't even come to gym class half the time. And when he did come, he would kind of do his own thing and joke around and dunk volleyballs and the gym coach loved him. He got away with it. Why? It's because he's Justin Lewis. And you're not going to fail a future pro athlete in gym class, right? Now, here's the, here, here's the thing. Many of us can have that same mentality as it relates to our spiritual walk with God. We can believe that for whatever reason that we are special, that we are the standout, that God in no way could fail us in this class. And what Paul says is is that some of these people must suppose that this is the case. The self-righteous individual must believe that they can kind of do whatever they want to do and get away with it. So look at verse 3. This is what he says. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, going back to verse 2, God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things and do not practice the law of God. His justice is pure. His decisions are right. His judgment is always correct. And so Paul is saying that there are no exemptions. Meaning you are not too talented to escape the judgment of God. You are not too special to escape the judgment of God. Just because you show up at church every Sunday doesn't place you into some particular kind of category to give you an exemption to allow you to practice the same things that the pagans practice while escaping the judgment of God. This is the mistake that Israel made. Israel believed that they were special because of circumcision. Because they had the sign of the covenant. And this is the mistake that you and I can make because we own a Bible. Because we maybe own a really nice Bible. This is an expensive Bible, by the way, that my wife saved up and bought for me. And I'm special before God because my Bible has goat skin leather. Because I do these things because of who I am, that I'm somehow exempt from God's judgment because of my status, because I've memorized Bible verses, because I've made a contribution to society, because everybody around me thinks the world of me, because I do so much good, because of my wealth. Or maybe because of my poverty. Oh, God is surely going to give me an exemption because I've got nothing in this world. And I have an excuse. 
because of my personal piety. Because of these things, maybe this self-righteous individual believes that they will escape the judgment of God, Paul says. The third mistake that religious people make is this, misunderstanding that God's patience is condoning your sin. Misunderstanding that, that God's patience is something that means that God is cool with the fact that we are rebels against Him. Look at verse 4. You know, where, well, clearly God hasn't been punishing me. Like, like, like a toddler who, who is uh, reaching for that forbidden cookie, and they look at their parent, and their parent is being patient with them in their rebellion and doesn't say anything, and that toddler believes that their patience means that they can go ahead and grab the cookie that they have been forbidden. Look at verse 4. He says, do you presume on the riches of His kindness? and forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? To repentance. God's kindness. This is often what we call God's common grace. Uh, his, the fact that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun that rises every morning. The fact that we can uh, go to sleep at night and turn the heat on on a cold uh, night like last night. All of this is God's common grace to us. His kindness. His forbearance is connected with that. It's this idea that God is not pouring out His wrath. And He's continuing to give us kindness. The fact that there can be you know, such criminals in this world and fire doesn't immediately come down and strike them dead. That's forbearance. And then this third word, patience, which is the sheer amount of time that God is going to continue to show kindness to somebody that deserves otherwise for a very long amount of time. That's patience. He's saying, do you presume on these things? Do you believe that because God is kind and forbearing and patient with us, that that means that God doesn't care? Do you presume on these things? Do you believe that because God doesn't strike you dead now for your sin, that you can get away with this for all of eternity. You see, these are respectable people that Paul is talking about here. They know that they've sinned. They know that their sin deserves death. They know that because of their sin, their life ought to be miserable right now. Yet it's not. Things are actually still pretty good. You're still going on. It wasn't even found out. It's been forgotten. You've, you've got the respect of other people at your job still. You've got the respect of people in your church, in your neighborhood. You still have plenty of food. As a matter of fact, you've got more money in your bank than ever before. It must mean what? That God is okay with my sin. 
That's what Paul's saying. But what they don't understand is the fact that since, since God hasn't immediately struck me dead, it doesn't mean that He's okay with my sin. It means that He's giving me pa- uh, patience so that I might repent. His patience is time for us. His kindness is time for us so that we might repent. Well, this moves to the, uh, uh, quickly to my fourth mistake that religious people make, and that is this, believing that wrath will never come. Believing that that day will never come. Look at verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent, that means unrepentant heart, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. So he's saying the other side of God's patience is wrath stored up. Moving quickly into mistake number five, and I'm going to come back to patience in just a second. Fifth mistake is hoping for judgment based on favoritism. Hoping for judgment based on partiality. So we, Paul, at this point, he gets to verses 6 through 11. And 6 through 11 is, is called a chiasm. It's, it's this uh, sort of poetic way of writing which makes a big point. So let me read verses 6 through 11 together so that you can kind of feel the emphasis of Paul's big point here. He says this, He, meaning God, will render to each one according to his works to those who practice, or uh, I'm sorry, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. He's saying those who do all of these good things, who seek God's ultimate glory, who seek God's honor, will receive eternal life. But, verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But, now he repeats the reward for the righteous. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, meaning no partiality, Jews and Gentiles alike, judged by the same. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. How does God judge? Well, what he's saying here in verses 6 through 11 is by works. If you have done good, you will receive the reward. If you have done bad, you will receive wrath. Now, that's what, it, that's what he's saying here, isn't it? Now, don't, don't, don't be quick to accuse me of going against everything our conference just talked about last Saturday. Stick with me for a second, and let me get back to this, all right? He is saying that God judges by works. Last Sunday, a friend of mine popped up randomly as we were setting up for church, and uh, his name's Philip, and he had just dropped off a friend of his at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And he was telling me how the, uh, how the audition goes for the orchestra. And he said that his friend is going to sit there with his violin 
and sit on the stage and play whatever piece they tell him to play. And he said that there's a curtain between him and the judges so that the judge cannot see his appearance. They will only make a decision based on his performance. Now think about this. If you went in thinking that because you are so cute that these judges are just going to be won over and say, oh, we need her in the orchestra. She is just going to draw the crowds. Just look at her, right? Or look at him. And then you get there and you realize that there's a curtain between you and the judges. They will judge with no partiality. There will be no favoritism. They will judge solely based on the work performed. Now, this is what what Paul is saying here. Let's not be too quick to move beyond it. God shows no partiality. Like so often we think that God will judge us with favoritism. That He will be, be, be partial to us for one reason or another, because we are special. But he's saying that the, the judge will come with no favoritism, and he will judge purely based on what? Work done. So to summarize what he says here, he says those who do well, verse 7, give maximum glory to God, total honor to God, will receive eternal life. Those who obey righteousness will receive eternal life. Those who practice righteousness will receive eternal life. Those who do the otherwise, those who practice unrighteousness, those who do not obey God's law will receive wrath. He repeats it in verse 10. He says in verse 10, those who do good will receive righteousness or will, will, will receive eternal life. Now, tying God's wrath back into God's patience, what we see is that that wrath is the other side of God's patience, as I've already stated. God's patience is God's forbearance. He's holding back His wrath. An analogy that's used throughout the Bible for this is that of a cup, that there is a big old cup. And that cup is storing up God's wrath. So we could say that God's patience then is this vessel which stores His wrath, right? And so all the way back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, uh, says, take from my hand, God says, take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. This is the biblical analogy for when God is about to pour out His wrath. God's patience. Very nice for us today. Collecting His wrath. For every misspoken word, a shot of judgment goes into this cup. For every outburst of unrighteous anger, a shot of judgment goes into this cup. 
For every lustful look, a shot of judgment goes into this cup. For every lie that is told, a shot of judgment goes into this cup. For every act of arrogance and every act of pride, a shot of judgment goes into this cup. Oh, he is a patient God. And his patience is storing up his judgments and his wrath. Until one day. It's called here the day of wrath. When this cup is poured out. You see, for the person who is condoning their sin based on God's patience, they don't realize that it takes one day for everything to change. In April of 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia exploded, uh, uh, killing 93,000 people, sending an ash cloud up into the sky, into the stratosphere, which created a, a uh, Uh, the coldest year in the 20th century. Now, prior to that day, everybody was going on, life as usual, right? Mount Tambor is never going to explode. We hike it all the time. We live near it. It's fine. It takes one day for everything to change. And here he calls this day the day of wrath in verse 5. He describes it when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Are you prepared, church, to drink the cup of God's wrath? Now, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Jesus. You see, chapter 2 only makes sense if you keep reading. What, What Paul's doing here is he's presenting this hopeless state of essentially what life would be like if Jesus never came. And that is no hope for the pagans and no hope for the religious insiders. Chapter 2 builds up to chapter 3. And by the time we get to chapter 3 of Romans, for instance, verses 9 through 12, we read this. What then? He's making, he's making his concluding arguments. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, for by works of the law, by doing good, nobody can be justified in his sight. Since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 that we have just studied, what we have seen is the law. He has presented the law. And we in this room ought to be awestruck with 
the knowledge of sin and now turning to Jesus Christ as our only hope in life and in death. Paul has designed this entire paragraph to get moral people to realize that they too need Jesus. Jesus is not just for the pagan, but he's also for the do-gooder. Jesus is not just for the clearly broken, but he's also for the put together. Jesus is not just for the judged, but he's also for the judgmental. Jesus is not just for the outsider, Jesus is also for the insider. Jesus is not just for the younger prodigal son, but he's also for the older brother who is self-righteous. So we could kind of sarcastically turn this around, and, and I could paint the picture this way. I think what Paul is saying is, is look, if you think moral, morally upright individual, if you think you do-gooder, you person who uses all your resources for good in this world and everybody celebrates you and loves you, if you think that you can get to heaven without grace, then you better hope. You better hope that your judgmentalism covers your own sins. You better hope that you can escape somehow God's judgments. You better hope that God's patience today means He's cool with your sin. You better hope that God's wrath for you never comes. You better hope that God plays favoritism and thinks that you are in some way special. But the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ and through Christ alone. It's like we've got two options. You know, if God, if God is true to himself, then we need a remedy. We need a savior beyond this world, beyond our imagination. If we can get by without Christ, then God is not true to himself. He's not true to his law. He's not true to his own judgments. Now, here's why I think this is particularly helpful for us. It's because I think we, as churched people, tend to be, not always, but we tend to be more Romans 2 kinds of individuals than Romans 1. What I mean by that is we, we are the people in society who wake up every Sunday morning even on freezing cold mornings, and come to a lodge where the heat's not even clearly working correctly this morning, and it's chilly in here, but we're here anyway, and we're going about our days, and we're going to try to be hospitable afterward, and we're doing good, and we're serving, and some of you have uh, a, a title in this church, and, and uh, others of you are opening your homes regularly. We tend to be, if anything, on the judgmental side. You know, we tend to hear the Romans 1, and nod and say, yeah, the world is really bad. We all agree with that. Our temptation then is to condone our own sin and to believe that because of our duties that we are special. We have two options. Hope that God isn't who He says He is or even as good people, quote-unquote, run to Jesus who took our judgment. 
How do I think this text should hit us? First, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 should crush our own self-reliance. It should humble us. You know, true humility is to say, I can't do this on my own. True humility is to say, I need help. I need salvation. And there is not a religious person in this world that is above being able to say, I need help. I need salvation. You can't rely, self-righteous individual, you can't rely on your excuses, on your ethnicity, on your family heritage, on your achievements, on your religious devotion. So this crushes our self-righteousness. That's the first way that this should hit us. The second way that this should hit us is it should cause us and lead us to repentance, to repent of our own hypocrisy, the way that we might look down on others and quickly nod our heads and judge others while secretly participating in the same sins. Third, this is the most important. This is sort of the culmination of all of that. It should cause us to run to Jesus. It should cause us to hide in Jesus. When we go to Jesus in faith, we trust in Christ, we then are changed. We're transformed. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, holiness is not the way to Christ, but Christ is the way to holiness. How does he do it? How does Christ save us? How does he change us? Well, Christ made no excuses. When he determined to go to the cross, you see, us, in our specialness, we, we, we love excuses, don't we? Everybody else is doing it. You don't understand where I come from. You don't understand my hardships in life. You don't understand my temptations in life. We love to make excuses, and so therefore we think that we are an exemption. However, we have to recognize, if anybody was an exemption, it was Jesus Christ Himself. Exempt from the judgment of God. Completely fulfilled the law. Who does Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 describe in, 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 in the one who receives eternal life? Well, it's the one who does righteousness. The one who obeys the law. The one who seeks to, uh, total glory and honor and immortality. That's Christ. Christ was exempt from the judgment of God. And it takes one day. It takes one day for everything to change. Leading up to that day of wrath, Christ prayed in the garden. Father, if there be any other way, to bring about the redemption of your people, let it be. And he made no excuses. 
And he made his way out of the garden and was immediately arrested. As as he was betrayed, he made no excuses and took the next step. As his own friend Peter denied him three times, Christ made no excuses and he continued moving toward that day of wrath. As a cross was placed on his back as he drug that beam up the hill called Golgotha, he made no excuses and took one step after another. And as nails were driven into his feet and hands, and as a crown of thorns was crushed into his skull, he made no excuses and he hung on that tree naked in shame. And in that moment, that cup of wrath, which had been filled to the brim for you and for me, finally broke. God's patience broke on that day of wrath. And Jesus drank every bit of our judgment, every drop of it. There wasn't a drop that was missed. All of that wrath that was built for all of our brokenness and all of our wanderings and all of our foolishness was poured out onto Christ and He drank all of it. I just wonder if with this text being preached, And with this crushing blow of the law leading us to see Christ, to see Christ taking the wrath of God that we deserve, I wonder if anybody is thankful for Jesus Christ who paid it all. I love these blood songs that we sing. Jesus paid it all. And so all to Him I owe. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Church, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if we died with Christ, We've, raised with, we've been raised with Christ. You see, even death was not an excuse for Jesus to accomplish our redemption. Three days later, that stone was rolled away, and Jesus got up from the dead, and when He got up, we got up in Him, and we are raised to walk in the newness of life because Jesus paid it all. And so what's our response? All to Him we owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the blood of Jesus saving us from this wrath that we deserve. Not just the bad people quote-unquote out there, But those of us who try to do good in life are just as much in need of grace. And we stand here today, God, recipients of Your grace.
We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for putting us into Christ, giving us faith so that we might believe, receive, and enjoy the benefits of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.